Office Pulp, the podcast that laughs in the face of warnings about cracking up the multiverse from Wong, the true Sorcerer Supreme. I'm Mike of Earth 2616, and joining me in this spoiler filled episode all about Spider Man, No Way Home, is Jamie 1 to my Jamie 3, Jamie 2. Say hello, Jamie 2. Uh, I hate to uh, be pedantic here, but uh, you fucked up a little bit there. I am actually Jamie 7. There was a little bit of a mix-up with the other Jamies. I don't want to go into it right now, but you can also call me Jamie Prime. Because, it's just long story short, uh, the fate of the multiverse does rest on my shoulders. Which is really upsetting, because I'm not the one with the engineering degree. I'm sorry, halfway through that, I just started thinking about the Jet Li film, The One. And... <laughs> <laughs> Can we just I, talk about the Jet Li film, The One? It's very underrated. Okay, now I just want to see the, the the universe where another version of me kills everyone else and I suddenly have kung fu powers. <laughs> you just keep getting stronger and stronger. So This power is coming over me. Suddenly I'm nobody's bitch. You are all mine. Not a dream, not an imaginary story. Would Jason I, Statham still be there? Uh, Jason Statham is the Morlin of that universe. Jason Statham would make an amazing Morlin. <laughs> I think that's the first time anyone's fan-casted Morlin. <laughs> and the, the only time someone will fan-cast Morlin. Tell me Jason Statham shouldn't battle Spider-Man in some form, though. He should be uh, Craven. Oh, God, could you imagine British Craven? There's a lion pelt, isn't it? Anybody but Aaron Taylor Johnson. I'm confused. Is his wife directing Craven? Otherwise, I don't think he's allowed to star in it. I think they have a deal. Uh, maybe she's, like, uh, doing the score. <laughs> I could see it being one of those situations. Um, anyway, Spider-Man No Way Home, which uh, also stars Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. The, uh, spoilers, spoilers for this movie, by the way, which everyone's seen. It's made, like, several billion dollars <laughs> at this point, so I'm not that worried. And it's been out, like, a month. So I'm not yes. that worried about it, but we, we needed to talk about Spider-Man. More yeah. actually, I'm gonna rephrase that. Jamie <laughs> needs to talk about Spider-Man at every every turn, every available opportunity, and now it's a sickness. She has been granted the ultimate Spider-Man opportunity here to just go hog wild over all of the spiders mans. <laughs> Okay, uh, uh, first of all, I'm so happy anytime I get to say this truthfully. Uh, spoilers, spoilers, home dies. In the most literal way possible, home Several dies. Several homes die, if you actually stop and think about it. The home of the heart, the literal home, the homes of the multiverse. Happy's apartment. Happy's, that was dreadful. I never want to see that apartment ever again. All because he has uh, Tony's cast-off creations. God, so that's what happened to to the arm, whose name I forget, but was that's a really important character in those in Iron Man one and two, and then was cast off to be forgotten, except as a side joke, like Ultron's skull and <laughs> Homecoming. Uh, do you think the ha the arm just made happy sandwiches? 
It didn't seem happy. I fucking hope that's all the harm did. <laughs> Just looking down at its arm, thinking, is this what I was made for? What's weird is, why would Happy still sit on it to numb it? <laughs> anyway, I imagine I had uh, some of the same trepidations about this project going <laughs> forward that most people had. I mean, only a couple of years after Into the Spider-Verse blew the lids off of everyone's skulls, Marvel's next big Spider-Man project they put in development since Leave a No Way Home was still like halfway through, either halfway or finishing up development whenever Spider Verse came out. Like their next big project is, oh, well, we're also doing a big multiversal crossover, but but this time we're doing the villains. Like it, it it definitely reeked of okay, this is like some kind of weird backstage thing. Like this is an extension of the tug of war between Sony and Disney over these rights. So I was very worried that what could have been a very uh, promising follow-up to all the potential that Far From Home ended on was just going to be squandered in an attempt to do Into the Spider-Verse better than Sony. And good lord, could I have not have been more wrong. Not only is this an amazing sequel to No Way Home, not only is this an amazing, like, third, like, but not only is this an amazing finale to the Home Trilogy, it's also a gigantic love letter to Spider-Man, both as the pop culture figure and specifically, like, just the character of Spider-Man. This movie has, like, ten layers to it. it. It really recontextualized the entire series. Um up until this point, I, I had the same exact trepidations. I was very excited for No Way Home. At the same time, I was, I, I've had a constant state of, it's not really what I wanted. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we've gone on record as much as I, as much as we love Homecoming, as especially Homecoming, as much as we love Far From Home, the MCU Spider-Man movies have overcompensated um, in certain respects. It, they've been a little bit too MCU tinged. They, you know, their avoidance of Uncle Ben, which I'm sure we'll get to um, in regards to No Way Home and how that's kind of altered and not, um, you know, not really delving into the lesson and being a little bit too big at times, even even in a way flying in the face of what the store, what the purpose of Homecoming was uh, to where things start getting a little bit muddled. Um, and we really thought that. Far, uh, no way. Uh, far from home was setting up something like, uh, you know, maybe like a Craven film, or where the villains are coming after him. You know, we we've seen. It's like, well, Vulture knows knows his identity, knew his identity. I guess that'll never be unfortunately followed up on. But um, Scorpion kind of just disappeared, and certain things from Homecoming. We thought like, oh, that will tag it up, and then we started seeing like Jamie Fox and you know Alfred Molina and all this other stuff, and. No, they're just doing Spider-Verse. It's getting bigger instead of smaller. And there's nothing wrong with big Spider-Man, but there was something kind of missing about this, this, this Spider-Man, this Peter, that the MCU movies were kind of going too far into one direction. And I think a lot of criticism have been super unfair in regards to that. Definitely. I'm sure we'll go into that later, but yeah. Yeah, he is not Iron Boy or anything like that. 
Um, but there was a lack of context to it all because certain aspects were not necessarily missing, but when you're avoiding stuff as hard as, you know, uh, the amazing Spider-Man movies just fly out, never had uncle Ben say with great power comes great responsibility. Never actually had him even learn that, Hey, I'm responsible for uncle Ben's death. And it affected how you viewed that Peter. You had to kind of pretend those events actually happened for that Peter to kind of work. Um, which is actually kind of hilariously what far from home does um, <laughs> in regards to that Peter. And it felt like it was kind of going in that same direction. There was what Far From Home did was take the idea of this big event multiverse story, but everything behind it, every single decision that, that drives it forward is actually very small and intimate. There are very little details. They just happen to be dealing with big ideas. And what each one of those things does is as I said, recontextualize what this is as a third part of a larger story we didn't know we were being told. And we discover we've been, we've been watching an origin story for Spider-Man told in a different way. Yeah, with all of the plot twists in this movie, the most unexpected one is the revelation you have walking out of the theater that you've been watching amazing fantasy 15 play out for the past five years of movies yeah just to a spider-man who already is spider-man whenever he learns those lessons which is a it's it's not something that actually occurred to me as what they were doing at all previously and it completely alters past criticisms i've had even though i loved the movies and i love mcu spider-man um, dearly, uh, his personality is obviously is honestly better is more suited to what I view as Spider Man, like my Spider Man, my more modern, you know, like nineties two thousand Spider Man. Um, it never occurred to me that this is what they were setting up, and that moment with when Aunt May says, "With great power comes great responsibility," and it clicks that holy shit, like this is just a this is like an ultimate Spider Man. This is a a reimagining of his origin tale. It's not like they're necessarily changing anything, but they're they're going about it in a different way. And you've been watching this tapestry of an origin story that's a little bit more modern, that is placed firmly in the MCU as a kid wanting to be a superhero because you know superheroes are cool. So of course, and he's is raised by good people. And we don't know exactly what happened in regards to Uncle Ben. I mean, I still will get into it, but I still think it's a big folly not to show his grave next to Aunt May's. Yeah. Um, I think that would have been a beautiful clicking moment. And it doesn't necessarily need to mean anything, um, but it should have been there. But, like, and making Aunt May the Uncle Ben. Like, the first time Aunt May really actually has a really strong purpose to Peter beyond just being aunt may you know coming in and occasionally reminding peter that uncle ben existed is you know, no offense to aunt may throughout her entire very long storied history and the previous actresses that played her or, or anything like that because aunt may is a beautiful character but this is the first time like holy shit have her be the that focus in this life have her be that beacon that guiding light and yeah that's why peter's a 
is a good person. Maybe he didn't go through the whole selfish thing. Maybe he just wanted to be a superhero because he looked up to Iron Man. And I know they kind of jokingly made the kid an Iron Man too, Peter. But if you actually do legitimately view it as that, it's even more fascinating. Like, this is a kid who just wanted to be a superhero. And he wanted to, he wanted to do better than the Spider-Man from these other previous movies, essentially. He wanted to save these characters' lives. And it blew up in his face. And the lesson isn't just, hey, you can't... Because clearly, per the scene in Civil War, Peter already knew that lesson. Knew the, hey, you, you, if you can do things, and if you don't do things, then it's your fault when bad things happen. But also the full responsibility of, hey, you want to be a hero. And with that comes the responsibility good and bad and you cannot have it every single way you can't be famous and you know have have your private life and have all these things it's what's so interesting about the how they contextualize the the secret identity being out and how it just kind of and how it interestingly moved along to where it just robbed him of a private life of his of his life so he went from in homecoming wanting to be an Avenger, deciding like he needed to chill out a little bit. Like he got thrown into the story of, well, the Avengers aren't actually doing anything, so I have to take on this myself. Every story's been about a form of responsibility. Far from home was him being given the responsibility and then rejecting it. And then learning like, no, I have to actually take this on. And this is the completion of that responsibility arc. Each one tells a different part of Peter ultimately learning the lesson of with great power comes great responsibility until at the end he has all of these big machinations stripped of him and he's just Spider-Man in a homemade costume. Oh, if you want to go super nerdy literal with it, you could view the home trilogy as specifically an abstract adaptation of the key events of Spider-Man's origin. Like, uh, well, Civil War is Peter getting the powers and seeing what he can do with them. Homecoming is Peter wanting to become a wrestler, except in this version, it's becoming a superhero. And, you know, the fame and status that comes with that far from home is him letting the burglar get away, not out of selfishness and not out of any kind of spite, but in this, lo- in this instance, just rejecting the weight of that responsibility. And that decision eventually trickles down to Aunt May's death and Far From Home, which you know is the Uncle Ben moment. And it's fascinating that by breaking that, breaking those key components of the making of Spider-Man up into their own fully fledged stories, uh, like you said, there, there's just something so satisfying and so right. Whenever you see him in that final scene in the comic accurate Spider-Man costume in New York City on his own, like it, it feels like he's earned being the true Spider-Man in a way that like any other adaptation of Spider-Man, any other movie or TV Spider-Man never really has. Like this is a Spider-Man who has fought tooth and nail to be Spider-Man and has spent six movie appearances sussing out who exactly Spider-Man is, how Spider-Man operates. What's the cost of Spider-Man's decisions? Right, these movies uh, get a lot of flack for 
not being literal adaptations and for playing fast and loose with a lot of details of Spider-Man lore. But I'm in love with how after Far From Home, like you take a step back and MCU Spider-Man is one long, almost deconstruction and reconstruction of Spider-Man. Yeah. Which is why the the use of elements from previous franchise movies makes so much sense here. Like, obviously, that's something that could have been reality-breaking. It could have been too much. But there's something about the gauntlet of seeing Peter face all of these mistakes of previous Spider-Men and then getting to meet them, like, halfway, like, a little over halfway through the movie, which... By the way, I-, I went back and checked. The Spider-Man show up 50 minutes in. Wow. In a two and a half hour movie, we still get essentially an entire movie with Peter That's and the crazy. other Spider-Man. That's a sick, which is, and it, which is also such an interesting button to put on the team up aspect of these movies. Yeah. Because well, a big criticism people have had of the Homecoming trilogy is now, every the gimmick of every movie is Spider-Man's teaming up with another character, which I never had that big of a problem w- with, and never took that as as like a big Disney thing. Considering Spider-Man mainlined a Marvel team-up comic for about forty years, and they're yeah. very on the nose with the fact that these are Marvel team-up movies, so that that never really bugged me that much. But I I do love the idea that if we're leaving Watts behind, we're leaving this tone behind, and this gimmick. I love how this uh, this ends with the ultimate team-up. Spider-Man, 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 and also Doctor Strange. <laughs> well, there's also this beautiful aspect to it that I, I was so taken with when I was watching the movie, and upon reflection even more. Through these movies, Peter has been searching for a mentor. First, it was Tony, the superhero he looked up to, who he grew up watching. The first superhero of the MCU, you know, for lack of a, you know, not literally, but literally. And from there, he, he in Far From Home, it becomes Mysterio after, after Tony's gone. He's struggling with the loss of his mentor. And he goes over to Mysterio, uh, who, of course, bamboozles him. And I love how we can say that about Mysterio. (laughs) And Peter's been searching for all these external guides, all these external forces to tell him what the hell to do and how to be and to handle the responsibility because he's just a kid. He doesn't know. He he needs someone to, to help him. And while, you know, May ends up being that Uncle Ben guiding light, but it's not as a as a mentor necessarily it is as a figure the mentor figure is peter and peter is spider-man one and spider-man oh, i'm sorry spider-man two and spider-man three i forgot mcu peter is uh because of branding spider-man one um <laughs> and there is something so fucking just touching and beautiful about that that through the multiverse this ridiculous fucking stupid sci-fi story about toby Maguire and andrew garfield coming in through portals to battle their past villains in a slugfest what it what it actually means is peter listens to himself 
Like that's what that represents is Peter not going to somebody else for guidance. The person he's going to, to get for guidance is him just through this like actualized version where he's talking to older versions of himself. Well, know, also one much learning. older, one slightly older, and then he's the youngest. Well, also learning their mistakes and vowing to not do the same things yeah. they did. Like, I think there's something very beautiful about uh, Peter's search for identity in these movies. In the first two, uh, realizing that he's not, you know, Iron Man's sidekick and far from home and, and no, in far from home, realizing that as much as people want it, he's never going to be Tony Spider-Man. And this movie going as far as to stake out his claim that he is different from the other Spider-Man. Like not only is he Spider-Man, he is his particular Spider-Man. It's, it's almost a meta comment on what people kind of thought the MCU Spidey movies have been doing. But they've been telling mm -hmm. a tale of, no, this is Peter learning that he's not all these other characters. He's not all these other things. He is just Spider-Man. And he is this particular Spider-Man. And he doesn't need all this other, you know, all these other trappings. That's what's great about watching him get stripped of all that. It's such a sad ending, but he, you know, it's amazing to, pun in, not intended, but it's amazing to see him, you know, be told like, hey, Prince doing the runs through the first of the month and he puts his one box of belongings down uh, apartment that has a nice open window as he listens to a police scanner and the sadness of you know he was going to this tony got him into this like prestigious school and he wanted to go to mit and instead he's working on getting his ged and he just finds some crime and swings out a window in a suit that he just made himself that also is emblematic of the past two Spider-Men that he met it has little odes to them to say that he's almost the ultimate spider, the superior Spider-Man. You could argue. <laughs> I mean, Doctor Octopus did admire his superior Spider-Man legs. I think. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, and going into like just what an inter an interesting change of status quo uh, that ending is. Uh, there are two big takeaways I had from that walking out that uh, like really kind of flabbergasted me. One was I was not expecting them to follow the comics as accurately as they did by using Peter finishing up high school as a soft reboot. Yeah. Because uh, Ditko still stayed on for a little while in the college years, but... For the, the most memorable thing about the transition from high school to college in the old Stan Lee comics is that's whenever we went from Steve Ditko's stories to John Romita's stories. And there was a big tone shift in Spider-Man. A, a lot of the things that the MCU movies get slack for are honestly just them being tonally accurate to the old Stan Lee stories. Which are mostly just so. sitcoms set around Peter's high school where he's trying to impress other superheroes and is bad at being Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider the old Spider-Man comics were not the Fantastic Four or something like that. They were completely, they were different than anything else on the shelf. And it wasn't until Peter's move to college and then after the, grit, after the death of Gwen Stacy and Jerry Conway's run that we really got 
Spider-Man as we know him, a character who's a sad sack, who's mostly motivated by intense personal guilt, which, which is another wrinkle I find fascinating, that Mary, in terms of her importance to Spider-Man, Aunt May is both Uncle Ben and the, the, Gwen, and the Gwen Stacy death, with Mysterio serving as kind of the death of Captain George Stacy, this death of a character who was a mentor figure for one period of time, which leaves Spider-Man a fugitive from the law. The amount of actual comic-accurate Spider-Man stuff that's in these movies, but just done slightly different, is fucking fascinating. Yeah, you don't even notice it's happening most of the time. But I was also just impressed by the bait-and-switch of that status quo shift of spending three movies loading all of this out there capital s superhero stuff onto spider-man and then showing you through those three movies why spider-man shouldn't have any of those things this is why spider-man shouldn't have a super suit this is why spider-man shouldn't be in charge of tony's technology this is why spider-man can't be tony stark and have you know, an outed secret identity and be a superhero. And I like setting all of that up just to then take it away with the coldest ending to a Spider-Man movie ever, including the one where Gwen died and Peter just kind of got over it. Yeah, the one where Gwen died at the end and then the other one where Peter and MJ kind of just break up and then they sort of dance at the end, then slow fade out to black. We at least know through inference that things worked out. Things worked out because this also had codas in there. But yeah, I am taken with the balls of the ending of, of this flick. I mean, just the sheer amount of sad that happens and they go for it. I mean, just that conversation with, with Happy at Aunt May's grave and like, no, it's he literally doesn't like no one knows who Peter is. Like he, he's lost his entire life. Like he is gone to absolute nobody, and just that sadness of it's it is a great repeat of kind of the ending of Spider Man one in a way, but even harsher of Peter just deciding to his friends are likely better off not actually knowing him that through it all that's kind of the lesson is with great power comes great responsibility, and he can't have it all, he can't live two lives, he can't necessarily have these other people in his life if he wants to be spider-man if he has to be spider-man and it's that classic guilt that drives the character that is kind of beautifully driven the character for all these years and him just at night in the snow you know we finally get a final swing in one of these movies and it's so appropriate that it is it's saved for such a downer of an ending because it's a downer of an ending, but it's the beginning of the character. Which is so perfect for Spider-Man. Up to and including um, J. Jonah Jameson uh, now being a famous crazy news person. (laughs) Okay, yeah, we gotta talk about how much interesting, subtle stuff is done with Jameson in this movie. His rise throughout the yeah. throughout the course of the picture. Yeah, I love how it's not remarked upon at all, but there is an amazing bit of both satire and character work when you realize that at, during the after credit scene of Far From Home, whenever he breaks Spider-Man's identity, Jameson is fucking nobody. He's just doing a podcast in his basement. 
<laughs> and then in a couple of months, Jameson becomes a millionaire with a TV show off of Spider-Man, which is both an amazing indictment of the people like Alex Jones, who really do make millions on a very short amount of time over people's suffering. And it's also just great character work for Jameson because, oh yeah, that's why he's so narrow-mindedly obsessed with Spider-Man. He's the only reason he has money. That's 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 his bread and butter. It's like he has to just talk about Spider-Man all the time and daily bugle vitamins. <laughs> I love they lean so fucking hard into the Alex Jones stuff. So fucking spectacular. I was having flashbacks. And per uh, some viral stuff, Betty Brant works for the Daily Bugle now. <laughs> her heel turn which i love so much um it's also yeah it's funny jameson on the surface doesn't really do much that we haven't seen from simmons uh before but i'm obsessed with jameson's usage in this movie which and it's weird saying this considering how off the page he was in raimi's movies this is the first time Jameson's actually been used for Jameson's purpose, which isn't to be a comic relief character, but to be a genuinely upsetting manifestation of Peter's self-doubt. Like that scene where after Aunt May dies, where he's just watching Jameson on the gigantic television screen, telling him he doesn't need to be doing this. It's okay if he just gives up. The world does not need a Spider-Man. It's like, okay, that's why Sp- Jameson exists in Spider-Man's universe. That's yeah. why he's one of his, that's why he's his greatest true adversary because he's just the inside of Peter's head. And this version of Jameson like does actual harm is actually there to fuck up Spider-Man's life. I, I blame him for the lizard getting away. <laughs> In his jigsaw Jameson attire with his fucking <laughs> trench coat and hat. Looking like Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> On the sidelines wondering why he can't get any footage of Spider-Man. <laughs> Peter's gonna have to work for him one day. It's gonna be so sad and questionable. Peter's gonna, gonna take the Daily Bugle vitamins and grow four arms. <laughs> That's how actually he gets the symbiote now. Is uh, <laughs> just taking those fucking vitamins. The Daily Bugle branded CBD. Um, <laughs> get a VPN. Um. Oh my gosh, speaking of adversaries, we've gone this entire time, and we still haven't talked about the villains in this movie. And by villains, you mean you want to talk about the goblin. (laughs) Spider-Man and Willem Dafoe's Green Goblin had a fist fight on top of a gigantic Captain America shield in front of them. (laughs) Which, by the way, I just want to bring this up uh, before we move on. That is some outstanding seeding Marvel did with the weird offhand line about the new Statue of Liberty in Hawkeye. That really was fucking brilliant because I've been upset. Like, what? Why is there a new Statue of Liberty? Like, what, what are they going for? Oh, my God. They added Captain America's shield. That Which I guess and- was fixed super quick after the events of uh, Far From Home, by the way, because, I mean, it was like fixed a couple weeks later. <laughs> uh, I. I do like that between that and uh, seeing the ads for Rogers, you do did get some nice timeline synergy to figure out when the fuck this movie actually takes place. And Daredevil. <laughs> and Daredevil. Uh, which got a cheer from my audience. I was very happy. I mean, my mind got a mind cheer, too. It was pretty fucking great. Uh, Garfield uh, got the biggest cheer, though, which was, which was nice. 
I think that was earned on Garfield's part. But we'll talk. We'll talk about Spider-Man's. Go. Feel free to talk more about Gabby because I know you want to. <laughs> Goblin crime. Oh God, I- I'm I'm fascinated by like this movie's obsession with repairing mistakes of the past, both as the pretext in its story and also just seemingly the production's motto. Not only do we get to see uh, Willem Dafoe smash his expressionless green goblin mask and then just act with his face the rest of the movie while cloaked in green, this movie addresses uh, another of the original Spider-Man's biggest flaws, in my opinion, which is no knockdown, drag-out fight scene with the Green Goblin. Like, he mostly just kind of shoots things at Peter, and Peter avoids them, and then they have a little bit of a fist fight at the end. Seeing all of this physicality from ancient Willem Dafoe is probably the Doing best. Doing the action himself, effect. too, which I love so much. I know. At no point did it feel like, okay, like, they, they conked in Dafoe afterwards. No, it just looks like actual Willem Dafoe is falling through a skyscraper with Tom Holland. Because <laughs> Dafoe cares that fucking much, and I, I'm so here for it. <laughs> it it's really speaks to how iconic that performance was to an entire generation, that through sheer cultural memory, you were able to have that character come into a movie where no other character other than the other villains know who he is and treat him like he is Satan incarnate. (laughs) (laughs) Like, when that goes bad, that can blow up in your face spectacularly. That's that's how you get uh, Dawn of Justice assuming you already know why this Batman is sad before you walked into the movie. (laughs) But this is absolutely just a great use of that kind of cultural awareness. And there's something fascinating about building the Goblin up as the ultimate Spider-Man villain, like across the multiverse. Like he's this crucible he's that, yeah, he's the crucible that the true Spider-Man must face off against as the ultimate representation of power without responsibility. <laughs> but even and the thing that really surprised me is I was expecting like, lots of cool goblin action stuff with what they could do with CGI now. I was expecting, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Like, they're going to get the memes in. (laughs) I'm fascinated by the character work. Like, all of the unexpected extra character work they put into other franchises' villains that they had no obligation to do anything with. I mean, for the first time, like, you see a version of Norman Osborn that's played as a mirror version of Peter. Like, they really leaned into the scientist aspect and had him even, like, slightly mentor Peter in yeah, their a couple bit. of scenes together. That's what was great. It's like Peter almost was sliding back into, oh, hey, a mentor I can latch on to. But it's the Green Goblin, which he's not aware of exactly how dangerous he is. Also, God... A homeless Norman Osborn going to feast because he saw Spider-Man in a commercial and maybe Spider-Man can help. It's the saddest fucking thing. So fucking sad. It was so unexpected the way they played Norman. 
But it makes total sense, especially, I mean, you think back to the ending Spider-Man 1 where the goblin leaves him for a second and he's begging Peter not to let the goblin take him again. It's like, oh yeah, this is a Norman who was almost completely engulfed by the goblin by the end of Spider-Man 1 and to the point it was against his will. Like, yeah, Norman was an asshole, but at this point he's, he's being tortured by his id. And now it's taken him to this place where he's confused and lost and Norman Osborn is just gone and he doesn't know what's going on. And just the voice of the goblin is just ringing out in his subconscious. So him being just really pathetic and just wanting help is so sad, but it makes total sense and does set him up as the ultimate person for, for Peter to help. And leading of course to the greatest spider sense scene maybe in all of <laughs> spider-man fiction where peter susses out in a room full of villains who is about to betray him and it's the goblin i love the how important the spider sense is to this movie finally the spider sense is important to a spider-man thing thank god and watch cracked the fucking code on how to film this thing I am so impressed from a technical standpoint with how much Watts has raised his game this yeah. time around. Like, I 100% see why he has Fantastic Four after this. Yeah, that, it's not that it was odd to me before, but I thought, like, you know, you know, that seems a little bit random. I mean, especially with, like, Peyton Reed right there, who almost directed a Fantastic Four movie at some point. And, yeah, I mean, Far From Home and stuff was, you know, big, but I wouldn't say it was fantastic. It, it didn't. It felt a little bit out of left field, but now it's like, oh, because they knew no no way home was coming. They they saw what Watts had become. This is a dude <laughs> to do goddamn Fantastic Four, yeah. And look how many characters. I mean, the script itself is a fucking magic trick. But between the the writing and what Watts brings as a director, the amount of characters they're able to juggle is astounding to me. Like like you brought up every villain has an arc even if it's teensy tiny they at least get moments electro is fascinating <laughs> i i'm let's talk about electro for a moment i am so happy to finally see jamie fox's electro same not this same. weird other version of electro they wanted jamie fox with his, to be. With his dubstep theme like, and what's fascinating is when you take out all the dumb shit Amazing Spider-Man 2 added to that portrayal of Electro, Fox is just comic book accurate Electro. Like, yeah. Electro's, like, Electro's not a particularly deep character. The only real thing he has is he's a loser who's failed at everything he's ever tried. So being Electro is really, really important to him because... If he can't do anything else, he can at least be a supervillain. It's the same way, like, how Parasite works as a Superman villain. Like, it's very, it's a very straightforward allegory villain. And that's what Electro is. Like, he's just, he's pathetic. And then his power is power, literally. So, that's it. And that's what I love whenever he's depowered at the end. He doesn't even bother, like, trying to get any kind of revenge. He's just... Oh, well, I guess I'm not Electro anymore. I'm a loser. I'm just Max again. And then, of course, that's for Garfield Peter to come in and do the Garfield Peter thing, <laughs> which is 
kind of jazz up it, like give pep talks to his villains to try to make them feel better about themselves, which I love how, no, that was Garfield's Peter. Like that's what Garfield's Peter did. Yeah. People forget that one of the things that did make Garfield's Peter uh, unique is he was the nice Spider-Man. Yep. Like Garfield's Peter is aggressively friendly to everyone when he puts on the mask. It's <laughs> it is one of the endearing things about his performance. It's what makes those movies rewatchable. I mean, uh, not not so much like the the first one, of course. Is uh, I don't hate on that movie all like as much as two, which is dreadful. But it uh, two is at least watchable for what Garfield's doing at all times. I was so happy they remembered that and the fact that. He was the science Spider-Man, so as soon as he comes through the portal, he's trying to figure out how it all works. Yes, that was uh, that was perfect. I mean, they just they wrote him exactly dead on to to how he was. I mean, seeing him put the lab coat on over his Spider-Man suit <laughs> and then put the goggles on, like yeah, that's that Peter. He's the he's science Spider-Man. Still wish they could have put the lab coat on Lizard, but we can't have everything. Okay, well at least Lizard was still better. Lizard got to have his own, I don't want to cure cancer, I want to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> but was still sure to warn Peter that when meddling <laughs> with changing people's <laughs> basic humanity, you cannot alter those around you. I see, know. I, see, I love how obviously Lizard gets the short end of the stick with these villains because he's the one absolutely no one remembers. But he's still comic-accurate, semi-comedy Lizard. Yeah, he's, like, still, he, he's just still just a lizard, lizard hanging thing. out. Yeah, he's he, still played by Ry- Risa Fons. <laughs> Doing a different voice. Doing a different voice, but it's great. It's like, I loved hearing that accent come out of the Lizard. <laughs> I got a... Uh, Thomas Hayden Church, who also doesn't have a lot to do, but still manages to be compelling Sandman. Show, show, well, he first appears and he's still heroic Sandman, <laughs> our favorite thing in the world. Who still just wants to get back to his daughter. And really only goes along with being a villain thing because he, he just doesn't want to, I mean, at that point, they're pretty much saying like, yeah, we're going to kill you. And he just wants to get back to his daughter. And God, so the only reason he joins the Sinister Five. <laughs> This does still amuse me. They could not find any way to round that out just to make it the six. That was impossible. Well, unless you bring in Dane DeHaan, but I, well, I love how they could have brought in Venom, but he was too busy getting drunk at a bar, <laughs> which I think is honestly better. I mean, that's great. That's that. That's that Venom. Just like uh, wait, what? I love how we went from the after credit scene of Let There Be Carnage of Venom entering the MCU. To this after credit scene where he immediately has to leave. It is maybe one of the greatest jokes Marvel's ever played. And it's all for the purpose of just leaving a little bit of the symbiote behind. The tease that, no, Peter will be going dark at some point. At some point, seven years from now. It's like that little bit of a seedling. Like, no, there will be a Venom in the MCU. And we don't have to explain it because it's just from another universe. But all the Venoms apparently are connected thanks to the symbiotic, even through the multiverse, because <laughs> comic books. Also, uh, I, I think it would be remiss to, oh, talking about the villains to not stop and talk about the brilliance of Alfred Molina. Of every single thing they do with Alfred Molina in this movie. Just getting to be angry as fuck Doc Ock. 
but then also still being redemption arc. Alfred and, Molina held an arc reactor in the palm of his hand and marveled at what Tony Stark was able to accomplish. <laughs> it's like it was done for us. I like how even beyond like the stuff that's cool about seeing them interact with MCU things, just seeing Norman Osborn and Otto Octavius talk to each other because, oh yeah, they were technically colleagues. Is stuff you realize, oh, we were we, we never got a chance to see this in the other movies. We were kind of robbed of it. So now we are getting like this these comic book moments with characters who never got a chance to interact. I mean, like we, we get we get Otto and, and Norman interacting, which is such a big comic book thing. We we get Electro and Lizard interacting. We get them all arguing with one another. Sandman and Electro bond over their ridiculous Spider Man villain origins. <laughs> Gotta watch where you fall. And my one of my favorite moments in the history of cinema, Dr. Octopus and Dr. Strange teamed up to fight the Green Goblin. <laughs> that joke from Spider-Man 2 has been paid off decades later. Had to have been on purpose. Had to. Well, I mean, this movie does have uh, Garfield say no big deal twice, which, as we learned from the Sony leaks, was supposed to be his catchphrase. I'm still puzzled by why that would have been a catchphrase. Uh, because kids hashtag things NBD. So that must mean no big deal was really in with the kids these days. Right, old white people. Those Sony leaks are a roller coaster. If you haven't, if you haven't revisited those lately, just refresh yourself with how Hollywood really works. Oh, oh yeah, go, go to them and remember, this is not like a, spe a special thing related only to Sony. Remember, this is how every movie studio actually interacts and thinks on the inside. This is not specific to Sony. So just ruin all of Hollywood for yourself. Um, Mike has had to transcribe studio meetings in the past. This is how they talk. It's true. Just as offensive, too. Just as offensive as you think. Um, man, uh, what we haven't gotten to, though, I think, is... I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about Garfield a lot. And... But actually talking about Maguire and and Garfield coming into the movie and both the fact we were able to they're able to have arcs to a degree, much less Maguire. But his arc is almost uh, a comforting things continued for me. I didn't really need anything further, which yeah. was almost kind of like a, a nicer button after the kind of incompleteness of the ending of Spider-Man 3 of saying like, no, everything's. Everything's cool, but no, I, I went through everything. Like, uh, oh, we don't actually need a Spider-Man 4, which was actually kind of nice. And for Garfield, it was giving him kind of a mini Amazing Spider-Man 3 of like, this is a piece of what his arc would have been like. This is what Garfield wanted. He, and he gets to come full circle when he, when he saves MJ. And the fact they're able to actually pull all of this off without them overtaking the movie or taking away from MCU Peter at all is... I mean, that's the fucking hat trick right there. Yeah, the, the fact that we got sequelization of the amazing movies, with like hints of further adventures, like with Electro, and even hearing Garfield talk, like, briefly in tone that the events of the cancelled Amazing Spider-Man 3 happened, with Peter going dark and shit. There... I'm amazed that they were able to pull off having like little bits of coda in there 
without it ever feeling like you're just watching a bunch of people talk about uh, appearances on other TV shows you don't watch. Yeah, it, because it relates directly to MCU, Peter, in some way. Like, it, ha it has some meaning, even if you don't actually need to watch those movies, which is... Which is not something I was expecting. I thought they would lean more into fan service with them. I mean, not to say there wasn't any, but it was how, what purpose do they serve first, fan service second? Mm. And with that stuff, we get a, a little mini Amazing Spider-Man 3 just through context clues, through dialogue, and we get the completion of his arc. You don't need to watch those movies. And it almost feels like the events that MCU Peter has brought about are what bring about the end of that you can feel that emotion from garfield and it works in full with mcu peter's arc in the movie same thing with uh mcguire kind of just saying like hey i i went there you know i almost killed the goblin i did kill the goblin <laughs> like referencing you know becoming you know the black suit spider-man um copyright <laughs> and things kind of falling apart with MJ and then kind of getting back together and his amazing line to, to Otto of still trying to do better, which That's is the such a Spider-Man thing. The most Spider-Man line in fucking history, but it's also the most just great encapsulation of the meaning of Maguire's Spider-Man in particular. And I was talking to somebody the other day who uh, about No Way Home, and, and I was talking about how, I mean, we, we were talking about how um, to our generation, Maguire's Peter, you know, both with, like, because 9-11 happened, and just how, what the ages we were, we came up with him in a certain way, his arc, especially in that first movie, and again, and again kind of in two, had a really strong meaning, like, what, what that Peter represents. So to almost have him show back up now when we're older, we need like the, the same age. Yeah, and saying kind of just the same thing and like checking, going like, hey, just keep trying to do better. Like everything's going to be okay. You'll go through the darkness and you'll come out the other side. It was like, oh, shit. Like this is actually, this is kind of a watershed moment in pop culture in like a very subtle way. It, it feels like the nerd version of the Steve from Blue's Clues video. God, I think if that, that should have been the after credit scene. I think everyone would have cried. <laughs> Which, speaking of, it it warmed my heart so much to see that Tobey Maguire has not altered his performance as Peter Parker one iota. He still performs like he's hosting a children's show and is it is confused but d delighted by everything he sees. It's like, yes, no one on Earth gives that kind of performance for a superhero. I love it. It was so nice to see, like, he didn't miss a fucking step. It was great to see him, like, in the costume doing stuff, or just saying Peter things and giving out Peter advice. And seeing him be, like, older Spider-Man. I think we really don't get to see, we, like, we don't really get to see a Spider-Man of Maguire's age. So you get, like, this statesman Peter. There's something so beautiful about him being introduced as just some dude, some old man <laughs> hanging out in the street corner. With his Spider-Man costume underneath at all times because he's Spider-Man. <laughs> Not stuck in the costume because he was wearing it when he came through the portal like Garfield. 
I don't he know is walking down the al- the um fucking Spider-Man, Spider-Man no more. Alley. <laughs> I fucking love that so much. And him excitedly like running up to the portal to see what's going on. <laughs> fucking killed me. And there was uh, not, and I do love how they introduced Garfield first because of course Garfield would be the more confused of the two Peters. <laughs> because there is something about Maguire's Peter who would just be like, "All right, I guess I went through a portal into another dimension." Well, that is somebody whose reaction to the existence of a monster of living sand was, where are they get these guys? He wore an alien for a while. I mean, <laughs> God, the dude's been through some shit. God, it's weird hearing the plot of Spider-Man, 2, uh, Spider-Man 3 briefly spoken aloud. That was surreal. It's like, okay, I know it's, I know it was a movie, but it's still weird to hear like referenced in a real movie. It's like, right, oh, they weren't just revealing Spider-Man 3 was like a weird fever dream. And then Garfield's really bummed he never got to go to space. <laughs> I say, the, the peers giving each other pep talks because they don't want either any of them to feel bad. They didn't get up to the same adventures as any of the others. Which is, uh, and I love how they all know to do that for each other because they're all Peter Parker and have low <laughs> self-esteem. They just immediately fall into the fucking brothers mentality. I love it so much. Not to mention, there just from a meta standpoint, there is something very beautiful about after all of the shit Garfield got for being in mediocre Spider-Man movies, and like feeling that he had let the character down personally. Just hearing Tobey Maguire tell him he was a good Spider-Man after all was really nice. Not just a good Spider-Man. He was an amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> Wink. That that was great. That was earned. I think that's why... I mean, everybody loves fucking seeing Toby again. I mean, that has like such meaning to it. But I'm so happy everyone is actually more latching on to, to Garfield. Because that is a dude who fucking... Did, like, he didn't get the same recognition as McGuire. McGuire got the kind of... I mean, yes, his fourth movie got canceled. Um, you know, Spider-Man 3 was Spider-Man 3, so it didn't end on the highest note. But he got to be a pop culture icon. He got to be Spider-Man still to this day for most people in a way like Keaton will forever be Batman. And Garfield didn't get that. He got very mistreated both by the studio, by, the uh, you know, the creatives on the movie, by the public. Garfield was fired by Sony because he got sick and couldn't show up to a, a trade event in Japan. So he was fired from being Spider-Man that day. Sigh. Um, kind of like how Spider-Man 4 and uh, was canceled and Amazing Spider-Man was greenlit all within like an hour. Um, but not only does he get that, the movie remembers that like to, to a generation of people, like regardless of how maybe we feel about the movies or anything else, to a generation of people, they love those movies. And he was Spider-Man for them when when they were kids or when they were just young teens or or any or you know just people there 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 was a fan base for those movies. Now, of, a lot of people, a lot of people do like have really like looked back on Amazing Spider-Man one and have gotten attached to it. So yeah, there's a a sizable fan base for that universe that is completely un, underserved. And they do, des- and they deserve to have like their nostalgic moment just as much as the the fans of the Raimi movies deserve it. So I, I'm really glad the movie uh, that that 
No Way Home gave just as much, if not more in some ways, service to that franchise and its history in in such an honorable way. And I don't know I don't know how if you feel this way, but do you feel like this is such a great even though it's completely different, a companion piece to into the Spider-Verse because they still play with the same lesson of what makes us different makes us Spider-Man. Absolutely. Like that was uh, like we said at the beginning of the episode, that was our biggest fear going into this that this would just be redundant considering Spider-Verse had covered so much of the same ground, but the way these two movies ask similar questions but come up with sometimes parallel and sometimes completely different answers fucking fascinates me. The yeah. biggest example would be the Uncle Ben scene in Spider-Verse and the Uncle Ben scene in No Way Home. In Into the Spider-Verse, we have a scene where after the death of Miles' uncle Aaron, all the other Spider-Men... Uh, tell them I tell them of their own personal Uncle Ben story, the moment of tragedy that could have been prevented that made them Spider-Man. And I'm fascinated that in Far From In No Way Home we get the same scene, but it's three different Uncle Ben figures that aren't Uncle Ben. And who that person is actually is the most important person in that Spider-Man's universe. Like, obviously, for Maguire, it is Uncle Ben. For Garfield, it's Gwen, because Uncle Ben was never the most important figure of his life. He was the inciting incident that led to him putting on the costume, but it was the death of Gwen that shaped him and made him Spider-Man. And like likewise with Holland, it's the death of his Aunt May. And... There's something about that and Peter's, uh, uh, Maguire's response to finding out that she's the one who told Peter with great power comes great responsibility. I, I think it's saying something, uh, it's saying something a little bit different there. Not that the loss of someone close to you makes you Spider-Man, but that, that each that each life has its own specific problems that make you the person you are. And that has to be navigated. And each person has to navigate that in their own way. It's not we, like, we all share the death of an Uncle Ben. So that unites us as brothers and sisters across, uh, across the multiverse. It's more, yeah, everybody has that one person in their life that, reminds them the true cost of responsibility and irresponsibility and finding that's what makes you Spider-Man. That's what make not just what makes you Spider-Man. That's what makes you a man. That's what, that's where the line of demarcation is between childhood and adulthood is when you have that uncle Ben moment and you realize the actions of your consequences and what the true cost of being the person you want to be is. And that's just comparing two scenes from those movies. This is why I could just listen to you talk about Spider-Man forever. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm just over here to, like, the scene where Peter, like, punched Green Goblin in the face, and Green Goblin just kept laughing as he was getting punched <laughs> was cool. As I said before we signed on, I, I, was, I just keep ha watching the scene of them going through every floor <laughs> of the apartment complex on YouTube. 
ever since YouTube got flooded with cam clips from that movie, I have not been able to get anything done. You said a long time ago, we were talking about like why we're so obsessed with the Green Goblin. And you, you, you put it very succinctly, which is the Green Goblin is comic books. He's a snooty rich guy who dresses like a witch. A snooty, hyper-masculine rich man who dresses as a witch with a purse who throws pumpkins at people. It's also canon. Um, that hair is kind of part of his skull. <laughs> Still not sure how that works. We've seen many Osborne skeletons, and the hair remains. That's part of the goblin formula. So much so that at one point they tried to retcon it, and they kind of did. It's forgotten that Sandman and Osborne were related. Yep, that was in John Byrne's uh, Spider-Man Chapter 1, the original Ultimate Spider-Man. That was them trying to make the universe less complicated. All because of the fucking hair. Just draw it differently. God All damn because... it. Oh, did you ever see that final interview with Steve Ditko before he died where he revealed why he gave Osborne that hair? No. To make him look important. That's the most Ditko thing I've ever heard. <laughs> He gave him fantasy hair that does not exist in nature so that you would know that Harry's dad was important. I look, I, I love Ditko. Um <laughs> you know, and, and no and you know, no disrespecting um such an important figure who of course has passed away from us, but Ditko is a weird fucking guy. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, how the fuck did Stan Lee work with Steve Ditko? What did they talk about whenever they weren't writing Spider-Man? They didn't. Didn't. That's the answer. They didn't. Just some shit showed up to the Marvel bullpen in a wrapped bag that wasn't marked, and it was Spider-Man for that for that fucking month, and Stan had to deal with it. Nothing, nothing Mike is saying is an exaggeration. That's how the last year of Spider-Man was made, with Stan and Steve not talking to each other like it's the last Pink Floyd album. <laughs> so going back, to, uh, before we wrap up, just going back to the Goblin real quick, I just want to geek out for a moment over the fact that th th they did the Stan Lee Green Goblin thing where Norman is inexplicably cured of the goblin dementia, and it's just a normal person. But the threat of the goblin... <laughs> the thing that they gave Harry in Spider-Man 3, but they didn't have space for Norman. <laughs> we got a lot of Stan Lee goblin stuff going on in this movie. It was really great. And I think a little bit of slot goblin, too, in some of his speechifying. Goblin still got to give a speech about choice and responsibility. The dude needs to move off of the, some other stuff. I mean, I, I mean, I, I understand that's his bread and butter, but Jesus. Also, he got goggles. Also, he <laughs> they fucking gave him the fucking um, arm blades from the concept art, which I love so much. Well, they gave him the arm blades, and they gave him the fucking Alex Ross tunic from the super early concept art when he was still going to transform. That's the only, uh, honestly, the only thing I'm bummed about is Final Transformation Goblin was barely in the movie. I mean, I respect they didn't like, I'm sure there's stuff on the cutting room floor with the, with the Goblin and all the other villains after they, after they escape. But God damn it, I respect the fact they, they pulled back and they knew that they couldn't just do that fan service stuff. But can we just have a Goblin cut uh, of just what the <laughs> Goblin's up to? Does the Goblin being the leader of the Sinister Five? 
he gave like he gave them orders and shit like at some point and Ock had to had to pretend he was still under like control of the tentacles I love that Ark still talks to the tentacles. Listen to me now. If only he said that. I still know how he absorbed the nanites, but I do like how he immediately recognized nanites. <laughs> Just most technology. Fucking, most fucking Dr. Octopus thing in the world. Also, he got to look up at the green goblin coming through fucking smoke in full costume. Osborne? <laughs> And then Peter rebuilt the inhibitor chip, because all that has broken has been made whole. Oh, uh, and then Maguire cured him, because he's been thinking about it for a long time. <laughs> How he could go back and fix Norman Osborn. But not for his timeline, because of how time travel works in the MCU. It's <laughs> a weird thing to think about. All of those villains then went into their home universes, where they created alternate timelines. And the original... <laughs> version of them just never showed back up and then the tva showed up and killed them <laughs> you know certain things you just don't think about especially with kang running around now which by the way so we totally saw like kang's end of the end of the universe fucking um like uh, purple uh weird smog area from uh the finale of loki right oh absolutely that had to be what that was supposed to be Oh, uh, the, the amount of synchronicity between the multiverse stuff in Loki and other Marvel properties is fascinating. Like, you can watch shit synced up that, uh, like, really makes you, uh, wonder just how much, like, how much planning went into that stuff. The it's fact that the WandaVision and Loki finales sync up fascinates me. I'm sure someone's already put, like, that, the Loki finale, and, um, the breaking of the multiverse and and uh far and uh no way home together and it all syncs up perfectly and what's great is even if it's not planned out that way it just shows like the amount of uh of meticulous planning marvel does that they can accidentally do that oh god that's that, yeah before we leave i just want to talk about this for a moment how fucking wild is it that in 2021 the storytelling idea that's captured media by storm is the hard sci-fi concept of infinite multiverses that thing that you'd only see in like star trek and 70s sci-fi paperbacks is now at the tip of everyone's tongue i've been very curious about this from like um a zeitgeist pop culture standpoint because it seems apropos of nothing we've landed here the, the multiverse stuff, the, the combining of nostalgia of previous franchises to, to push forward new ones to kind of circle back and combine everything and where everything matters and the, the, the concept of multiverses and infinite worlds. And everything is landing there at the exact same time. And none of it seems and it none of it seems to be like piggybacking off of one another. They're just, all yeah. just landing there at the exact same year, like the exact same point in history. And I don't understand what that's what that represents yet. Like, why did this happen? Well, it's weird. Like, like DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths is what weirds me out because that wasn't something that was cobbled together in two years. That was the result of nearly like a 
the better part of a decade of planning as far as the the CW shows went. Like that was something that the like the ball started rolling on that in the first episode of The Flash. But it just again, everything just kind of worked out that way. I wonder if the popularity of the CW shows among like just teenagers and young adults maybe prepped uh, people who are going to see movies now for that type of storytelling. Like, I, I don't know. It, it, again, it just seems like something that's been building, like, not even building, but that's just been at the periphery of pop culture for a while. And as soon as Spider-Verse came out, just broke free. Yeah. But with, but with projects that uh, in, developed independently of each other, like the karaoke machine being invented in five mutually mutually exclusive cities in Japan in the in the middle of the twentieth century, <laughs> or Swamp Thing and Man Thing, my go-to <laughs> more eloquent example. Uh, I like yours. Yours was like smart. Mine was dumb. <laughs> um, Please, Mike. Both of our examples were dumb. Uh, yes, yes. I, I'm I'm curious. Just looking back, like once all these things pass. You know, once Flash comes out, once the multiverse stuff kind of comes to a form of completion in the MCU, uh, you know, once a lot of these uh, stories uh, in other places start winding down and, and switch to something else, what the ultimate meaning behind this as a reflection of culture was? Like, why this point in time? And I, I don't think it's clear yet. I don't think anyone making these quite understands, especially when it comes to comic book stuff. They're really just... They're really just going back to the source material for it. But it's like, well, we have the source material now as history of how long these movies have been going. And maybe it's as simple as that, is a celebration of the genre has now been all-encompassing in a, in a way that's much more important. And it can now celebrate its own history. And maybe it's as simple as that, or maybe it's a combination of that and something deeper with society i mean I, I have a hard time believing there's not something else there that's floating around in the air that these creatives are latching onto because that's just the way it always works no matter what the genre is um something is going to latch onto something and a movie's going to be created and we see that with with horror last couple of years in such a big way we see that um god i mean we see that with pretty much everything is commenting on 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 some sort of societal more right now the fact uh, that the purge franchise exploded the way it did over the past decade says a lot exactly uh or just the mcu movies having this all these allegories going on underneath and you see you know the strong cultural latching onto of like black panther and it, the allegories of colonialism going on within it, and I, I'm really, in, I'm really curious what the fuck the multiverse stuff is going to end up having said about us. Yeah, it's just like an era of science fiction storytelling. Like for all we know, multiverse is is going to be to the 2020s what fucking space was to the the late 70s and early 80s. And it may be just with all the strife going on, with, with all the difficulties and how just hellish everything is. Maybe it's it's almost humanity. I mean, it seems silly considering we're talking about fucking comic book movies and like fucking Michael Keaton's the flat of the in the flash is Batman again and shit. But maybe it's as simple as it microviews us. 
it's the idea of the multiverse is both terrifying and comforting is there are these infinite possibilities that it makes us feel small and in feeling insignificance there's there there is beauty and insignificance at least i feel and i think the multiverse concept as a as a science fiction concept really plays into that because if there's infinite use what you're doing in a particular moment is actually can be very unique to you and no matter how small a gesture is, it can have this amazing ripple effect throughout an entire multiverse. So it's a very micro view of something through a macro lens. Yeah, simultaneously makes you feel very, very small and very, very big at once, which is why I think it's so uh, intoxicating as uh, as a sci-fi concept. Even, even, even stuff like Rick and Morty, where that pops up, just that idea that Yes, it's very it's very depressing that there is an infinite number of you, but isn't it also kind of empowering that there's an infinite number of you? Yeah. And and what does that say about yourself and the world? That's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that uh Marvel hasn't gotten dumb with this stuff. Like there's they have a kind of a blank check for nostalgia. And for like milking franchises into the ground with the multiverse, and No Way Home and Loki could have very easily gone that route. But both projects have kind of made a mission statement. Even even What If has been approached from this idea of okay, we're not just going to use this as a toy box. We're actually going to tell introspective sci-fi stories using the multiverse concept and i think that that's good for sci-fi as a whole like i I don't think i don't think superhero movies get enough credit for making hard sci-fi storytelling concepts that would normally be unpalatable very palatable for the masses which makes it easier to tell that kind of storytelling in other mediums I mean, how how do we get a world with more uh, Vil- Denise Villeneuve style sci-fi? You know, we raise a generation on Marvel movies. Exactly. Th- it it's it it's creates literacy. You always have to graduate up, and that's not to talk down to like comic book uh, movies or comic book, or I should say superhero storytelling. Um, but it is a gateway. It is a a similar form of the same exact thing, and they tell the same stories just in a different way and they can be just as intellectually enriching um but one is easier for people to wrap their head around and then they can graduate are you telling me i'm sorry but we were all like dune made how much money (laughs) that you cannot tell me that's important yeah and i'm sorry but part of the reason why dune made money is because we've had over a decade of marvel movies and superhero movies and these dense getting progressively more graphic novel literature storytelling going into these sci-fi concepts and preparing audiences to be able to comprehend and understand and be open to something a little bit more involved it it's all it's forever seems like we moved away from the hard sci-fi of the 70s but we didn't we just found a new way to express it and can circle back around to it which was the appeal of comics in the first place at least the uh, generation of comics that most of our media is based on now like the stuff from this like the jim starlin cosmic stuff 
uh, even even like some of the older EC stuff, like what part of the magic of comics is seeing very nerdy concepts uh, distilled with you know, colorful characters. I, I'm I'm very glad that one of those basic elements of why I love comics so much has made uh ma- made a successful trip into another medium. Yeah. But I also really like it when Spider-Man punches the Green Goblin in the face and the Green Goblin just keeps laughing as he's being punched and isn't actually having any effect because he's so crazy. Oh, man, wasn't it cool whenever Electro put on that jacket and it was yellow, so it was like he had his costume without him actually having his costume. And whenever he used his lightning, which was yellow now, it made the starfish on his face for some reason. Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man fought the lizard. Tom, Tom Holland's Spider-Man turned his costume inside out, and there was a new costume on the other side that he didn't know was there. Well, that's just because he's stupid. But anyway, <laughs> goddamn, doesn't even know how to get paint off. Jackass. <laughs> Green Mysterio paint, by the way. He, he made that costume to use for a fucking week. He could have sold it for money. I mean, he didn't have to give that up. Just, I guess he had to pay for the GED. I mean, he doesn't even have a social security number anymore. Anyway... <laughs> I think we've babbled on about, um, let's face it, mostly the Green Goblin for long enough. If you've enjoyed this episode of Box Office Pulp, then you can, of course, find us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and a lot of other various places. Just search for Box Office Pulp Podcast, or you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at Box Office pulp we're also on facebook facebook.com slash box office pulp podcast of course the website is as always box office pulp.com i am mike napier which you can follow along on twitter at lucky deck napier i also of course occasionally write for a website called horrormovieshub.com if you want to check out any of my stuff there jamie take it away and you can find me on twitter at mondo funky I don't tweet very often, but my retweets are choice. And like the goblin always says, choose. Okay, choose which one of us to follow. Follow me. From now on, I'm just going to use my uh, plug segment to replug the stuff you're plugging. I'm I'm just going to change my Twitter handle to your Twitter handle, like make it redirect. Oh, that's so evil. (laughs) I don't, don't fool the audience. What, you don't think our audience deserves to have Mike descended on them? Nobody deserves to have Mike descended on them like some sort of hellish bat typhoon. (laughs) I'm sorry, my brain went to Dracula untold, and I don't know why. (laughs) I'm not really sure why you said Mike descended upon them, and my brain went, oh yeah, the trailer to Dracula untold, a movie I have not seen Despite really finding Luke Evans handsome. Right. You saw what he did as William Martin Marston. Really liked him in uh, The Alienist. Anyway, that's a wrap. Get the hell out. Huh. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and get this episode back to formula. <laughs> <laughs> and like that, he's gone. If only Strom came through, it'd been great. Oh God, what the fuck happens? They bring they bring Strom in at the very end to give CPR to Norman. Oh God, if only Burner showed up. <laughs> Why was it Burner reference, sir?
Could you just imagine fucking, like, that sad scene? My company doesn't exist. My son. Burner. Burner wasn't even born. <laughs> Burner is the CEO of Roxxon and the Super... <laughs> He's Ray Weiss. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.